We're going to go ahead and start. We are uh, looking at uh, evidences of inerrancy. Last time we got into the biblical testimony, we got into uh, some select passages that dealt with the biblical testimony concerning itself. We got into what Moses had to say in uh, Exodus and in uh, Deuteronomy. We also got into Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel. We looked at something from each of the minor prophets. And then we got into uh, some of uh, the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 119 especially, this is actually the psalmist attitude toward the Word of God, and uh, that is one of the major chapters in all the Bible about uh, this subject. We then got into what the New Testament writers had to say about uh, the Bible, 2 Timothy 3 16 and 17, the fact that uh, the scriptures are God-breathed, that uh, God inspired the words of the Bible, not just the ideas, not just the concepts, but the very words, verbal plenary inspiration we had gotten into that, of course, uh, from the beginning. We got into Second Peter, uh, chapter 1, First uh, Peter, chapter 1. We got into Hebrews. We uh, saw what James had to say in uh, James 1. Acts, chapter 4, Acts 28. All of these passages dealt with the Scripture's view of the Word of God. And then we got into uh, what Jesus himself said. Did Jesus believe that the Old Testament scriptures were inerrant? Uh, The answer to that, I believe, is yes. There's no doubt that Jesus believed that the, the narrative passages of the Old Testament were facts of history. And uh, this is borne out all through the Gospels. We got into to Matthew chapter 23, Matthew 22, uh, Matthew 4. We got into uh, how Jesus viewed the Old Testament as being predictive of himself. John 5, uh, Luke 24, Luke 4, Luke 18, all of those passages deal with that. And then we, we got into John 10, Matthew 5, Matthew 31, and uh, even about the, uh, the New Testament. What does the New Testament that wasn't even written during Jesus' day, but I believe he pre-authenticated the New Testament scriptures which would be written under the supervision of his chosen apostles. And so John 14, 26 
gets into uh, some of that. John 16, 12 through 14, how uh, he will guide us into all truth. Matthew 16 and 18 and following. John 20 and uh, 21. And so all of these things are proofs and some pretty good argument about inerrancy. Tonight we're going to get into more arguments for inerrancy. These are basically supplemental arguments. You're saying that there is verbal plenary inspiration that the words were given by God. But you're telling me at the same time that there is no mechanical dictation. Come on. <laughs> well, we got into a little bit of that uh, a couple of weeks ago about uh, what mechanical dictation really means and what it doesn't mean. And uh, we do see that uh, mechanical dictation does play a part in some of the writing of Scripture. God literally told the writer there on the spot to write this, and he gave them the very thing to write. Uh, That's really more of an exception than um, the rule. Uh, The main thing, I think, that I would uh, go back to for someone that kind of has that attitude about... uh, what you're talking about is I would get right back to the the definition of inerrancy that we gave back at the beginning, and that is God so supernaturally directed the writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, literary style, or personal feeling, His complete and coherent message to man was recorded with perfect accuracy. The very words of the original Scripture bearing the authority of divine authorship. And then we got into, uh, I guess, about a week's worth of uh, study on what inerrancy does not demand. And one of those things was it doesn't demand mechanical dictation. It's real funny, but almost no solid, good Bible scholar believes in mechanical dictation. There's not one. There's not a faculty member at Dallas Seminary that believes in mechanical dictation or at uh, Southwestern Seminary or out at Dallas Baptist University or at Criswell College. John MacArthur doesn't believe it. Uh, R.C. Sproul doesn't believe it. Uh, Warren Wiersbe doesn't believe it. D. James Kennedy did not believe it. None of the good Bible teachers that we know about and that we listen to and that we read about and even the, the John Walvards and the Pentecost and Howard Hendricks and people like that, they don't believe in uh, 
mechanical dictation either. And so the one of the great arguments is who who believes it? Who believes it? And uh, you should only believe something that solid, reputable people believe. If you can't find anybody that believes it, uh, walk away from it. Chunk it. That's that's a that's sort of a, a principle of Bible interpretation. If you take a passage of Scripture and you study that passage, you really look at all the word studies, you get into all the commentaries, you 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 try to interpret this passage the best you can, and you finally come to a conclusion. And your conclusion doesn't agree with anybody. Not a soul. Not a commentary. Not a word study. Not a good book about it. Not anything or anybody agrees with you. There's one of two things to do. Think that everybody else is wrong or think maybe you could be wrong. And uh, I think we ought to all vote that if uh, if it's thousand people against us and we're the only one that holds to this little interpretation, maybe that's a good sign we should uh, move on to another belief. <laughs> okay. We know Revelation the Revelation has not progressed to that. Mm-hmm. No, I think you got to own something there that's okay. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't find any fault with that at all. Um, it, it's hard to determine just uh, how many people during the so-called dark ages really believed right. I'm not for sure just what percentage of the the real church uh, realized that what was going on at that time back in 500 uh, A.D. or 1000 A.D. or later when Martin Luther came on the scene in the 1500s. Just just how many people realize that uh, this church stuff was, was all messed up? I'm not for sure the exact percentage there, but I think that percentage might be bigger than we think. There's always a remnant of people that believe right, I think. And so, we need another Reformation, by the way. <laughs> That's, uh, that was 500 years ago, and uh, there's so many things that uh, that tried to get corrected, and they got corrected pretty good, but not good enough. And uh, we're still into this uh, two types of Christians, those that are really big shots that know everything. And if we want to know something, we go to them. And, uh, you know, here's the clergy up here on this level. Yeah. And then here's the rest of us peons way down here on this level. And that that's all over the place. That's in Assembly of God churches and Methodist churches, Baptist churches. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to just stop there. But uh, it's all over the place. Let's, uh, let's get into some stuff we were going to uh, talk about tonight. Uh, one, of the, one of the good 
evidences of inerrancy is the continuity of Scripture. Now, this is, um, this is a supplemental argument. Some people may not think this is as convincing as maybe some of the others. But I think this has a strong argument. I think it's maybe more convincing than some people think. Consider this. Our Bible has 66 books in it, written by 40 different people, 40 men, in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, over a period of about 1,500 years. Some of these uh, authors, by the way, were kings and diplomats and statesmen, and some were shepherds and fishermen and farmers. The customs were totally different during this 1,500-year period that the Scriptures were written. And even though we have 66 books in our Bible... It's still one book. And uh, there is nothing else in the world like the Bible. There's no literature anywhere that's even close. This is miraculous. The fact that we've got 66 books written by 40 people, three different languages, 1,500 years, and it all comes together without a mistake, without a, any kind of deceit, without uh, an error. Uh, the only way this happens is that God did it. And uh, you can't even find a good Bible commentary today that may be written by 20 or 30 different people. They come together. They're basically from the same school of thought. And a typical commentary on our shelves in our library or down at uh, Dallas Seminary or somewhere, just a, a one-volume commentary or, or a, a, a commentary about a particular book. There's more disagreement in a, in a commentary like that than you'll find in, in Scripture. It, it's amazing. Um, one of the other great evidences, the continuity part, we're not going to spend any more time on that. Uh, another great evidence and a strong argument for inerrancy is the fulfilled prophecy found in Scripture. There are literally hundreds of prophecies that have been fulfilled already. Prophecies written many, many, many years ago in the Old Testament. And they have been fulfilled in the New Testament. And uh, we're just going to pick out a handful. And I've uh, put 
some of those on our uh, board tonight, prophecies concerning Christ in the Old Testament. And I may need some help here uh, looking uh, up some of these uh, passages. Uh, The first one is Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and following. Micah was written in uh, 700 B.C. And guess what Micah said in Micah 5? It said that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of Christ. And then it goes on to get into that Christ would be an eternal being. That uh, he would be one who preexisted. It talks about from everlasting that's unbelievable that a prophecy like that in the Old Testament, 700 years before Christ's birth. Somebody, somebody read Micah 5 and 2 and following there. From everlasting, this is really two prophecies. The fact that Christ... Uh, is an eternal being without a uh, beginning and that he would be born in Bethlehem. Yes, yes. And we will uh, touch on that one here in just a a bit. Uh, I think everybody knows this one, Isaiah 7.14. This is prophesying the uh, virgin birth of Christ. Somebody read Isaiah 7.14. And the uh, passage that uh, where that is fulfilled is Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 18. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, there is the prophecy of Isaiah being fulfilled in uh, Matthew. We, if uh, we had a little more time and we just want to have a little fun, we could could, uh, get into all of the ramifications of uh, some of the uh, translations. There's a... a translation that uh, that when it uh, gets into Isaiah 7:14, it doesn't use the word virgin; it uses the word young woman. And uh, I think we're going to spend a little time on translations, kind of at the end of the course, and we will get into that. That was a very major bobble by one of the translation. Groups that came out uh, with uh, a a version back uh, in the late 40s, early 50s. We buy a standard version, I believe. The uh, Massacre of the Infants by Herod. That was actually uh, talked about over in Jeremiah. Can someone look at uh, Jeremiah 31? 15, go ahead. 
Okay. And then, of course, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, uh, there are some things that uh, Matthew says. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod getting mad uh, and killing some some young children was prophesied many, many years before it happened. The flight to Egypt. This is a well-known story of their flight to Egypt. Hosea, Hosea 11, 1. Somebody... Okay. And then in Matthew 2.14, we have uh, the Old Testament uh, commenting on this. And uh, so this is a tremendous uh, passage here. Um, Jesus being a priest, uh, Psalm 110 Anybody have that yet? Uh, Psalm 110, verse 4. Okay. And then in Hebrews chapters 6 and 7, both those chapters get into explaining that Melchizedek is a king and a priest and uh, a type of Christ. And so there is, uh, again, some uh, prophecy fulfilled uh, Psalm 41.9 talks about Jesus being betrayed. That's uh, mentioned in Psalm 41.9. Somebody have that? Okay. That is doesn't mention Judas there, but it talks about a, a friend. And then uh, let me... Let me see over in Mark 14. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest to arrange to betray Jesus to them. That, uh, that kind of sounds like Psalm 41. Zechariah prophesies that 30 pieces of silver would be used in all of this. And then that again is mentioned in Matthew 26, 15. Let me uh, read Matthew 26, 15. How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah 53, 7. Well, we skipped one. Zechariah uh, 11, 13. Okay, go ahead. Uh-huh. Wow. Uh, they purchased a uh, potter's field 
with the uh, 30 pieces of silver that uh, Judas gave up. So that's, again, uh, an unbelievable uh, prophecy that's been fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 7 talks about Jesus will not complain when he's crucified. This is unbelievable in and of itself because uh, crucifixion is ultra painful, makes people suffer. It's probably uh, never been uh, an execution uh, that's ever been thought up that is as bad as uh, crucifixion. And yet, Jesus did not complain. Isaiah 53, 7. Anybody have that? Well, in Matthew 26, 62 and 63, say this. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, weren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. When the high priest said unto him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. We, uh, we know Jesus said something to the effect that uh, that's what you say. Uh, anyway, he, d- he does say right here, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, Jesus but didn't take up for himself or defend himself at his so-called trial. And uh, he was also silent on the cross as far as complaining uh, goes. All of this talked about in Isaiah hundreds of years before this happened. And then in Isaiah 53, 4, and 5, uh, here is the concept of Jesus suffering in our place. Somebody read that. Mm-hmm. Our is mentioned a lot of times. He died in our place. He died for us. And Matthew eight, sixteen and 17 has some things to say about that. That evening many demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. He cast out the evil spirits with a simple command and He healed all the sick. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah who said, He took our sickness and removed our diseases. You're on to something there, and of course we're just we're just uh, doing a few. That, that's another one, and uh, many, many more. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you shared that. Um, Isaiah 53:12 talks about Jesus dying with sinners. Somebody read uh, Isaiah 53:12. Hmm. Yep. Dying with transgressors. And then uh, Isaiah 53, verse 9. Read that. It's about uh, being buried in a rich man's tomb. Mm. Unbelievable. And then here's one of the great uh, prophecies that uh, should be pretty impressive. Uh, Psalm 22, uh, 16 talks about Jesus being crucified 
He, his piercing, piercing of his hands and feet. Somebody read Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. Unreal. Now, the unusual thing about this—you you may know exactly where I'm going—but this is a clear prophecy of how Jesus would die. His hands and his feet would be pierced. And there's no question it's talking about crucifixion. And this is the book of Psalms talking about this. Um, Crucifixion had not even been thought up when the book of Psalms was written. Nobody had ever been crucified before. When the book of Psalms was written. When you do a real uh, search and a real history. Look at some of the uh, Bible dictionaries on the word uh, crucifixion. And some other uh, places out there. You find that uh, the first people to do crucifixion were the Persians. Around 500 B.C. Later in the 300s, Alexander the Great did it. And then uh, around uh, the end of the first century B.C., the Romans uh, started using it. They, of course, perfected it. They were the ones that were famous for using it. And they used it more than anybody They also used it on the worst of the worst. And it was usually uh, for uh, the the worst hardened criminals. So here is just a, a sample of some of the prophecies that came from inspiration. This is, uh, we'll... Let's let's finish up on a, on a few others here. Uh, Psalm sixty nine twenty one. We're not gonna. Okay, if you've got it, that's great. Yeah. Okay. Um, the fact that Jesus was given vinegar on the cross was talked about, spoken about in the book of Psalm. Unbelievable. And then uh, Psalm 34.20 talks about no bone would be broken. Not a bone would be broken. And John 19 talks about that. When the soldiers came around to break his legs, which is so common with uh, crucifixion, your legs were used to kind of push yourself up and to give you some air and to kind of keep things going a little bit. And uh, when they kind of got a little bored and wanted you to hurry up and die, they would go over and break your legs. And you couldn't push up anymore, and you would be dead soon. And so that was the plan. But when they got there, they saw that Jesus has already uh, died. Uh, Psalm 16.10 talks about Jesus being resurrected. And Psalm 68, 18, 
talks about Jesus ascending back into heaven. Uh, there are literally hundreds of prophecies that, uh, that talk about all of this as well. I want to spend just a, a minute on another proof of um, inerrancy. This is also a supplemental argument. Some, again, would say this is not as strong as some of the others, but it's archaeological evidence, archaeological proof. Uh, For example, Abram, Abraham, city of uh, Ur, there were, as you as you probably know, for years and years and years, there was zero evidence anywhere except in the Bible that uh, there was a city uh, named Ur, or there was a person named uh, Abram or or Abraham. Uh, nothing. And therefore, all of the, the commentaries, all of the teaching, all of the, uh, the, the Bible uh, books from less than a conservative persuasion, the uh, conservative Christian would say, well, if the Bible says there was a guy named Abram or Abraham, and uh, he lived in a city named Ur. Well, that's good enough for me. But many liberal scholars, moderate scholars, if there wasn't secular evidence, then they questioned the Bible. And so there wasn't any secular evidence of this stuff until, guess when? 1922. In 1922, there was some archaeological discoveries that found the city of Ur. And uh, all kinds of stuff. It was quite a find. And I don't remember the, uh, the archaeologists, don't remember all the details about it. But uh, this was some of the best, this is now one of the best known ancient cities that we know about. Didn't know a thing at uh, the beginning of that century. But now, since 1922, we know all kind of stuff. And so it kind of made the liberals and the moderates who had this, if there's no secular evidence, why should we believe it kind of a, Thinking, So, archaeological evidence many, many, many times will uh, show that the Bible knows what it's talking about, even though there's nothing else around to uh, promote that. Uh, Belshazzar is another thing here. The Bible says he's the last king of Babylon and uh, he lived in the, the time of Daniel this is talked about in Daniel according to again secular records there's no finding of Belshazzar none until the mid 
1800s and tablets were found and the name Belshazzar is found and other facts uh, about Belshazzar. And so we've got confirmation through archaeology that what the Bible said is exactly true. We're digging up stuff that has been underground for thousands of years. And so a good archaeological discovery uh, almost always will show the reliability and the accuracy of Scripture. Another proof about all this is Moses and writing. Moses, of course, uh, wrote the Pentateuch, liberal scholars and uh, moderate uh, ones uh, never have thought that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. It's the JEDP theory. Uh, It was other people, other sources, uh, written way later than uh, uh, the Bible claimed and so forth. Oh, don't get me on that. Anybody know? You're supposed to know, Paul. <laughs> uh-huh. Yahweh. But anyway, it's uh, they didn't know. But they just gave names to the sources. They didn't really know exactly who it was. But uh, the point is, they even said that there wasn't an alphabet and there wasn't writing during the time of Moses. We have since found uh, examples of writing that actually go back further than than Moses' time. So uh, they even said that the parchment and writing instruments did not exist when Moses was alive. And we know now that that, uh, that is not right. That's faulty thinking, wrong thinking, and uh, it's very easy to understand now that Moses was writing during his lifetime. The Hittites, uh, 40 times they're actually mentioned in the Bible, and uh, liberals have said this is fiction, and yet we've gotten discoveries back in 1906, the very first discovery was uh, made that proved that the Bible was correct because we found a lot of stuff about the Hittites. Another point about the uniqueness of the Bible and the inerrancy of the Bible and the fact that what the Bible says is true is the unique content. And our our time is about up. We'll probably just... uh, get into this next time. There are some things in the Bible, some subjects that they deal with that only, only an inerrant, perfect, reliable book could could bring out. It's it's unbelievable what we will uh, see next time. And then we'll go through some other stuff. 
And then uh, probably two weeks from tonight, we'll get into some uh, translations. We'll look at maybe a dozen different translations that are out there and talk about the strengths and weaknesses of them, some of the uh, pluses and minuses, and who uh, who was on the committees and when it came out and how good a seller it's been and uh, who promotes it and who doesn't and why, all of those things. So uh, anyway, well, that'll be uh, two weeks from tonight. Uh, I, I think our uh, plan is to go a couple more weeks. I wanted to get into canonicity, but the more I look at that, that's about a two or three week deal all by itself. Anyway, we'll, we probably won't uh, really get into canonicity in this course. But uh, got a couple more uh, sessions, and uh, thanks for coming, and we will see you next next week.